When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tosh Robinson. Keith Phipps. Rachel Handler. And producer Genevieve Kosky. This week we're talking about Mike Nichols' celebrated screen adaptation of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Andrew Hayes' new film, 45 Years, which deals with another long-term marriage in turmoil. Since many of you probably haven't seen 45 Years yet... We'll try to go lighter on the spoilers than usual, but it's not always easy to talk around them, so proceed with mild caution, I would say. The tone of 45 Years is nothing like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, Kate and Jeff Mercer, played by Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtenay, rarely raise their voices and never seek to do deliberate harm to one another. By appearances, they live a quiet and settled life in the English countryside, and the people attending their 45th anniversary are likely to see them as a nice older couple going gently into that good night. But the emotions in 45 years are, in their own way, every bit as turbulent. When Jeff gets word that the body of his former lover has been found in the ice in Switzerland, where she went missing over 50 years earlier, it sets off a series of revelations about the relationship that shakes the Mercer's marriage to the core. That's something I want to tell you. Okay. Uh, You know, I I feel sure I've told you before, but it was a long time ago, so I, I could be wrong. Okay, go on. Yeah. Um, I I was her next of kin. What do you mean? Well, officially, I I was her next of kin. I'm sure I told you this before. Well, I think I would remember her husband being another woman's next of kin. So before we get into our form, I just wanted to go around the room again and see what you thought of this film that I love very much and I hope you feel the same way. Tasha Robinson, what do you think of the film 45 Years? I think you're leading the witness is what (laughs) I think. Um, You will disappoint me if you did not love this movie. uh, Prepare for your disappointment, Scott. I love disappointing you um, as much as I love disagreeing with you. I was not as sold on this film as you were. I mean, I think it's a fine film. I think it's engaging and I think the performances are uh, superlative. But compared to like the fireworks of Virginia Woolf, it certainly didn't move me emotionally or, or hook me in as much. It didn't, it wasn't as heartbreaking 
heartbreaking as the end of Virginia Woolf. It wasn't as terrifying as all of the other parts of Virginia Woolf. Um, I didn't have the emotional connection to it that you did. And so I'm, I'm very curious to see where that comes from. Goodness. What about you, Keith? I did. I was very moved by it. I'd say it's, I'm not going to say better or worse, but I think it is a more emotionally moving film than Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mean, I... You know, I felt like I knew these characters in a way that I didn't necessarily know the characters in Who's, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, I think they were, you know, I'll be draws them as, as very kind of big types in a way, uh, whereas these felt like uh, you know people you might meet walking down a certain you know, streets in certain parts of England and perhaps never get to know, as, as, as Scott said, unless, you know, if it weren't for something like this. For sure. What about you, Rachel? What do you think? Um, I I really, really liked it a lot. I, I don't know if I would put one over the other. I think I had really different responses. This one was much sadder, I think. It was much more – I, I think it was a little more actually emotional while the other one was a little scarier. <laughs> the only thing I wished is that I thought – I wish that it had explored what had happened to Katya a little bit a little bit more. That I felt left wanting in that way. By the end, I, I, I think there was – there were loose threads in that area. But in terms of an exploration of a marriage, I thought it was really, really effective and moving. I'm curious to follow up on that. What, what do you mean? What do we know? need to know about her? I guess I was, I mean, I know. I don't know that this was really the point, but I was a little disappointed that he didn't go to Switzerland. I kind of just wanted to see her in the ice. You want to see in the ice? Uh, <laughs> hanging in the ice. This is like, this is, this, that, that's, that's like Tasha with the weird ending that she imagined for, uh, for all the presidents of men. I don't want to see like, any of that. I was like, wait, damn it. We're not even going to get to see her in the ice. I think that's because I just really like dark movies, and I was like, this should be a little bit darker. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm picturing some horrible, fakey thing out of like the Ice Age movies, where there's just like this glacier, and like Scrat is stuck in action pose right. in the middle of it with his eyeballs right. moving around. I was picturing him more like the end of The Shining, where he's just frozen. <laughs> well, kind of like that. That's what I wanted from this movie. <laughs> to, to me, though, I I think that it, what I was thinking about this movie is it's kind of fine by the movies that it isn't. Like it could be about Jeff, you know, hearing the news of of, of his lover being frozen in the ice which is such a a strange thing but also such a a great metaphor as it plays out in the film for how the past doesn't really go away you know how we're 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 distanced from it and yet it's always there at the same time but it could be about him you know reconnecting with his past and and you know remembering the man he used to be and the love that he lost but it's it's not about that it's not his movie it could be about her uh, his wife, Kate, kind of learning to accept that and, and kind of coming to this revelation. And there's moments, particularly at the end, I'm, I'm dancing around this, but that they're set up as almost like these moments of relief or these moments where, where you know, forgiveness and, and like kind of acceptance. And, and it's not that movie either. And that, to me, that's what makes this movie so interesting is, is it, it, there's conventional routes that could go down. And it, it simply does not. Oh, it's got the best e- ending outside of Phoenix in mm, movies yeah. this year. No ice corpse, though. I just want the ice corpse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If they had added an ice corpse, then it really would have taken Then it would have been 100% for me. <laughs> I but mean, 2015 was quite the year for films that end like just with the camera looking at a woman having an internal mental moment, you know, because that like that's how Carol ended mm-hmm. too. That's right. it's how Anomalisa ends. Like it just it feels like I saw variations on that shot, Entourage. and they're all very different. No. <laughs> so why not Katya? <laughs> um, so why not? Why not Katya? I ask you. Um, one thing I will say though that I really liked about about the film. 
again, and this is just something that we are privileged to see in a way, is that is the idea that marriage is not settled. That 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 you know, as long as a couple has stayed together, and they this couple has been together for a long time, that there's there there's there's a dynamic there that I think defies the idea that people you know whatever grow old and you know settle down together i mean i think it, this this is a film that that says that's not really the case that, that that it's still you know a pretty lively affair um even though in this case it turns into a very sad uh, affair you know i've seen this film twice and you know w- what was interesting to me I, I had two different experiences because i think that the film is told really is really about her is really you know she is the focus of, of the film that we, we learn about revelations uh, from his past and the way they affect her as she starts to explore it as it goes too far really exploring it and learning things she doesn't want to learn and it's devastating to that extent too but watching a second time i was a little more more mindful of him and what he must be going through as well and uh and it's equally heartbreaking from that point of view too because fundamentally he lost the love of his life i mean you know in in the life that he is he has taken on with kate is substantial and he loves her for sure um but it's not necessarily the life that he imagined for himself and uh that's a painful truth for him as well as for kate you know you you put a lot of sympathy to kate i mean it's hard not to have incredible sympathy for uh, to find you know sort of dealing with the idea that that she's this man she spent her life with you know she's his, his second choice but also watching you know it's hard not to feel for him too she's not really giving him any space or allowing him any sort of room to process what what this this uh this discovery and what it means to him because since she's not really comfortable allowing anything into their marriage that's not related to her in some ways i mean you say that the movie isn't could have been more about jeff processing and wasn't that was what i wanted more of Mm. like i to me one of the reasons I think I felt distanced from this movie is because I feel very distanced from her. I think the movie has more sympathy for her than I do. I mean, one of the things that I saw in this movie, it's certainly not the only thing, but a strong kind of thread through it is just about her jealousy of a woman who died 50 years ago and who is not a central part of her husband's life. And yet she can't seem to bear that he has these memories of someone else. He, she can't seem to bear that he had this experience outside of her and it just it doesn't seem fair to him at all okay but no see i would dispute that on this front it's not just about his feelings about this woman who has been dead for 50 years it is about what he wanted from his life and what his marriage to her has yielded uh, you know and uh it has yielded in this case a dog um i think that is the painful thing you know uh, this was you know his second choice really for this is not the option that he necessarily wanted or he imagined for himself when he was with this other woman and i think you know even after so much time together almost especially after so much time together i think that's a really really painful thing to deal with and i think there becomes a point in 45 years where she goes and she admits as much goes too far i mean she starts questioning him and I think it's they're in bed, and she just says, "Okay, I, I this is I I can't can't talk about this anymore." I mean, uh, I think that's one of the most devastating things that happens in in the film is her choosing to shut him out. You know, she's the one who is doggedly going after this issue, and then she's the one who like raises it all up and then cuts it all off. And her her amount of control over the conversation. Um, 
it just it openly bothered me. I mean, we talk a lot about, especially in comic books, the the problem with fridging women, the problem with women in stories who die in order to give men some kind of catharsis or some kind of emotional upset or some kind of man pain drama. I feel like the opposite happens in this film. Something horrible, like a, a man loses a woman that he loved, and we keep backburnering what he's doing with it and how he's feeling about it so we can focus on how his wife feels about this thing she wasn't a part of. But I think that's a different movie, though. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it is I, a different I, yeah. movie. But what I'm saying is I don't know if I might have engaged in that movie more. That's the alternate universe. You know, that's Earth 2 and we're not there. Mm. But there were times when I was like, you know, couldn't you couldn't you restrain your jealousy just a little in order to feel – either feel what he's feeling or listen to him when he talks about what he's feeling. Because I feel like he tells her over and over what's going on in his head, and she doesn't want to believe it. I don't know that he does tell her. I think I think he's just as sort of elusive about his his feelings as she is. But I agree with you that I would, this is, what I think, what I'm saying when I'm talking about the ice corpse. I, th- I think there's another movie there. There's another path that, that it could have gone down that I would have liked to see also, if there was a way to sort of to marry the two, so to speak. I want to read this room correctly. We have two female contributors here who want the focus to be more on the men. Yep. No, I want, <laughs> I want the dead woman. <laughs> I No, I... I literally fridged. I'm very aware of this. Oh, my God, she really was. I'm very aware of the, the contradiction here. Yeah. This is... And I think it's interesting because this is not something I usually say... No, I agree. Won't someone please think of the men? What are the <laughs> men thinking in this movie? Uh, well, and I'll I say, no, only women. <laughs> I, I was I was very happy to to you know to see and have Charlotte Rampling as the focal point in this film because I think what she does here is is extraordinary and I think you know I've always I think she's an amazing actress and and this is a career highlight for sure for sure because I I find she's able to convey so much um, often without even saying anything that that to me was was focus enough and story enough for the film I I, I wanted to see. Her and, and you know I wasn't always necessarily sympathetic to to her actions, but I was very sympathetic to her position and what she must must be feeling. And to me, I thought that was enough drama to carry the whole film. And I just really respect the film for having a point of view uh, and for sticking with it and for showing this whole thing play out from one angle and not the other. Because I think I, I think more of an equal time thing. That just seems like feels like television to me. It, it seems like just, just well, contempt. Uh, such contempt for television. Like just show that, you know, to, I think, you know, and, and again, on second viewing, I think you can start, for me anyway, I started to think a little bit more about Jeff and what he was going through and, you know, maybe sort of validating some of his sadness in, in, in trouble. But, but yeah, just I think it is devastating and proper to really throw the focus on her and uh, it's a complex character she's dealing with a complex situation and I, and I think the film gets you to this remarkable point at the end um, and again I'm going to try to be as vague as possible where you think it's going to go one way and it doesn't go that way and it has it, I think the ending is the film is so true and bold and beautiful it's got a great final shot um, I, I just really had a lot of respect for it you're really choking up, aren't you? No, no, I'm just nervous. Uh, um, so let's get into the topics a little bit. Tasha, what have you got for us? Um, I just wanted to bring up the concept of, of old marrieds. You know, people, it, it's a phrase that we use. Um, you know, you two are fighting like old marrieds. It's a phrase that's been used about me and Scott. Um, <laughs> and how it kind of plays into both of these relationships, really kind of all three of the relationships we see on screen. In both 45 years and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, we see these people that have been together so long that they know where 
like all of the buttons are for each other. When they're fighting, they know exactly where the sore spots are. But they, you also see that they have just kind of a comfortable language with each other. They have comfortable routines, which in George and Martha's case are really ugly routines. In Kate and Jeff's case are such comfortable routines that she gets really upset when they're upset, like by him deciding to go for a walk. He actually leaves her note that says he's sorry because he went for a walk, which, you know, she wasn't expecting him to go for a walk without her. There's so much about familiarity in both these movies and how upsetting it is to people in long marriages when it, when it comes undone, even in the slightest way, and how the introduction of an outside element can just really disrupt what's become a comfortable routine, even if it's a very uncomfortable, comfortable routine. Yeah, and, and I think one way it plays out really well in 45 years is the way smoking plays into it. Oh, where, yeah. Where, uh, you know, he starts smoking on the sly, and, and, and I forget which one. Yes, yeah, she says, I don't want us to start smoking again. And it's definitely sort of a, a you do it, I do it, and we see her smoking later. And it's like it's kind of there's an understanding that what one what happens, what one person does inevitably is going to, you know, what one, one person's routine is inevitably going to become the other person's routine. It's almost almost – well, like a dead ringer's kind of thing in a way. Uh, marriage eventually, I guess, turned you in, into uh, creepy, uh, uh, creepy identical twins in, in its own way. Yeah, it's been an odd day. Sure has. Yeah, I just uh, <clears throat> stayed, stayed at home, you know, grappling with the ball cock. But you, you're right. I hardly go walking anymore. It was a nice day, so uh, off I went. So where did you go? Just to the village. To buy cigarettes? Mm. <laughs> I've lost my sense of smell, you know. Mm. I just don't want us to start smoking again. No, I, I won't, I won't. Probably. Well, and also, it also really um, ends up highlighting those moments where the routine is broken and where they do things they haven't done in a long time, like dancing and effing. Um, so, uh, you <laughs> know, which is kind to. of... We're trying to avoid the explicit tag here. Uh, we, are we, really... we are all capable of saying the F word in real yep. life. Oh, you bet. You bet. Um, boy. <laughs> bouncy, bouncy. Yeah, what is what is a 70s game show way of saying it? Making uh, whoopee. Making oh, whoopee. Yeah, um, so in any case, um, this is these are things that, that they don't do all the time and and uh and i think they're just they're really unsettled about the situation and needing to affirm um the relationship and the way you do that sometimes is, is you know f it out <laughs> <laughs> or smoke it i out. was gonna say dance it out you know <laughs> cuddle have a, have a good cuddle um tasha your your topic actually leads a little bit into mine can i can i go can i go can Everyone, I can I first can I first just say like I was actually glad when we saw her smoking because it meant when she said I don't want us to start smoking again it wasn't some kind of like royal we mm. like when men say we're pregnant which has always unsettled me a little bit she I, if, if she had meant I don't want us to start smoking again meaning I don't want you to start smoking again that would have just been some ugly ugly stuff about the relationship but Scott you I believe that you had a topic I, I have a, a to- I have a I have a somewhat related topic um that i wanted to get into which is uh truth or illusion um you know the, the big line as we talked in the first segment about you know truth or illusion george you don't know the difference know what we must carry on as though we did that's a key ex- exchange in virginia wolf but i think it applies equally to the marriage in 45 years which proceeds from the falsehood that jeff's relationship to his former lover isn't as significant to him as it clearly is you know kate makes the observation that that his feelings for her have always lingered in their marriage, his feelings for Katya. But part of their tacit marital contract is that neither one of them will bring it up. This may sound unhealthy, 
but it has sustained this marriage for 45 years. This illusion that Jeff's life with Kate, with a dog and without a child, is the one he willingly and happily entered into. Uh, and the truth, once it surfaces in full, is becomes too painful to bear. And part of that is just it's because of that old married couple disruption, because there's something in there that obviously we don't want to give away. But if you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. There's something that's in the whole past she she didn't know about that he hasn't brought up with her. And it doesn't necessarily seem like the world's biggest secret when you know what it is because you can see why he chose not to talk about it. But the fact that he chose not to talk about it makes her far more vulnerable in a situation where she's already feeling vulnerable, because it's something that wasn't part of their dynamic. And now it is, and she doesn't know how to talk about it. Well, the other two thing, too, that I, now, now I'm just thinking about it, connecting it to Virginia Woolf, is that it's actually maybe more analogous to uh, Nick and Honey and and her pregnancy, uh, hysterical pregnancy or whatever that 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 brought them into the, this marital bond to begin with. And, the and, puff, yeah, and, that, and I think that's, uh, the puff I'll, went poof. Is that a real yeah. thing? A hysterical pregnancy? A hysterical pregnancy is a real thing, but there's a reveal in that movie that's particularly deadly about exactly what the nature of her pregnancy it, well, was. Exactly, but the, but you can see that that's it's a this detonation. That's kind of waiting to go off in both cases, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 this exists, this happened, and this happened really early on, and and in, in, in forty five years, it's happened before the relation, just relationship with Kate even started, but it's there, and and if you and if you lit, light that powder keg, you know, it's going to explode, uh, and it's just waiting there to explode and destroy this marriage, uh, you know. So I think in, in all of these cases, there is a need really, to maintain an illusion, to not bring up something very true and fundamental about the relationship. There's a fundamental problem with the relationship that if they actually were to talk about it explicitly could be the undoing of, of, of the marriage. Yeah, I think both films make that same point, that there needs to be certain lies that you tell each other every single day for something to function. I mean, there's even a line in 45 Years where she says, I'd like to be able to tell you everything I'm thinking and everything I know, but I can't. Do you understand? Or something like that. And he says, yeah, I do. So I think they both they both realize the same thing almost in completely different ways. In Virginia Woolf, they realize it by living in this insane way for so long and then bashing it in at the end. And then in 45 years, they, they think that they've got it all figured out the whole time and then they realize that they don't. So I think that was really interesting to me is just sort of the two ways you could come to that realization, but it's the same realization. That line really stood out to me because it feels like to me in that moment when she says, you know, I have the, all these things in my head and I can't tell you. You know what I mean? And he says, yeah, I feel like she's using that as a weapon. She's withholding on purpose. And he understands she's withholding in a way in order to hurt the relationship. You really don't like Kate. (laughs) No, I really don't. And it kind of comes down to this moment. So I'm really curious how the three of you interpreted that. Because to me, it feels like in that moment, she's withholding in order to hurt him. Whereas what he's saying is, I've been withholding this whole time in order to help us, in order to make this relationship possible. I feel like they're doing the same thing for different reasons. And it makes me dislike her. I took it as her admitting that she was upset about it. But she knew that saying that out loud to him would be sort of an irreparable conversation. I think that they were both protecting each other in that. If you do go, and if oh, I... Christ, Kate, this isn't about Katya. Please stop saying her name. It I can't bear it. It isn't it, about Katya. It is. Of course it is. Like me discovering what the smell is around the house. Oh, please. And it's her perfume. Okay? It's like she's been 
standing in the corner of the room, all this time behind my back. Oh, come on. And it's tainted everything. All our decisions, what, where we go on holiday, what books we read, what dog you want to choose, what music we want to listen to. And the big things, too. Especially the big things. She's had nothing to do with any of that. I'd like to be able to tell you everything I'm thinking and everything I know, but I can't. Do you understand that? Yeah. Yes, I do. Uh, Keith, what's your topic? I want to talk about the past, which sort of kind of dovetails to what we were just talking about, but I want to talk about it in a couple of different ways. And one is how each of these films fills in the past. I mean, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It kind of all comes spilling out uh, over the course of, of a few hours after after 2 a.m. And 45 years, you get a week, and it kind of comes out a lot slower. Uh, you know, little bits of dialogue where we learn about their past, all these things about uh, how they don't have any photographs on the wall and, and, and what they would have photographs for. And it's a, re- a really nice way to, to convey what's important to these these characters. The other thing I want to talk about is sort of the past that these actors bring to the role in, in both films. Like with Burton and Taylor had a very, very, very public off-screen uh, relationship, uh, two marriages, uh, public tumult and, and other broken relationships that, that kind of led into it. And it's kind of hard, maybe it's easier for us from a distance of uh, 50 years to separate that uh, as we watch it. Tom Courtney and, and Charlotte Rampling have a whole history on screen that they bring to it too. Courtney being a very you know a staple of early 60s films like Billy Lyre and The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Um, he's worked in films since then. He's probably a lot more in, in theater, but definitely um, less so in America, but in, 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 in the UK, a very well-known figure. And Rampling kind of kind of came uh, uh, to public prominence in more in the late 60s, early 70s, but there's a whole history of characters that, that she brought uh, to the to the screen as well including a lot of edgy characters so kind of seeing her playing a settled down older woman is a little bit of playing against the charlotte rampling uh characters of the past so that's even it. of the even of the recent past of the recent like past swimming, like pool swimming pool or something. Yeah. yeah yeah definitely i mean mostly when i think of charlotte rampling i think of these very nuanced and very contained characters and that that falls into what she's doing here i don't have nearly as much familiar with courtney um, I think with Burton and Taylor, there's just there's too much of that. It, it's interesting to me how time can make most uh, cases of people in real life relationships being on screen together, like become irrelevant. Like we we don't necessarily care as much um, that uh, Ben Affleck was dating uh, J Lo like during the the time of Geely. When Geely? we watch Geely now, that's not what we're thinking about. <laughs> no, except for the part where we don't watch Geely now. Right. But but I, I mean, I see. I see what I mean. I think I did actually just say that. But yeah, that is what I mean. It it plays differently, like many years later. But Burton and Taylor were such a thing for so long and so famously that it's hard even now to escape that connection. Yeah, I kind of wanted uh, to, to address one th- thing that you said also about Rampling and Courtney in this film is that that you know these are vital performances, you know, in, in, in characters who are themselves again dynamic. Uh, uh, you know, I think with old couples, we just think they're just settling into old people roles, mm-hmm. and this is not. I don't think this is. You know, I mean, we're aware of their age, uh, uh, both ages, particularly Courtney, who's a little more frail in this, but it is. It's not settled. It's a. You know, these are both very. 
lively, engaged, vital performances. Yeah, I, I think you know when you when you're younger, you kind of see old age as sort of a you know a long coda, like you know all your business is taken care of. You can just kind of kind of glide into the sunset. But I, I don't think that's necessarily as as I get older myself, I mm-hmm. see that not being the case. And as and as I watch the lives of my parents' generation, that you know it's 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 not you know you know life life continues, drama continues. It, it's 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 interesting to see that portrayed in, in, in this film. And part of that is uh, your cultural impact continues. And as we're seeing the baby boomers age, we're seeing more and more of these films. Mm-hmm. You know, more and away from her and um, the Marigold Hotel movies and and on and on. We're seeing more films that take place in a world where people are allowed to be older but still have sex lives and still have unresolved issues and still have emotions and still have conflicts because more and more people are are culturally driving the conversation by being around and buying tickets and saying, you know, we we do, do still have all of these things and we are actually interested in movies that aren't about, you know, a bunch of young kids. One other movie way the movie brings out the past in interesting ways is is uh, music. There's, of course, the recurring theme of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which you hear uh, Ramplin's character humming early and becomes plays a major role throughout the film, but also just other ways. There's, the soundtrack is very 60s. The soundtrack is very much... Um, uh, songs from the from when you know these characters were younger and i think that plays out very interestingly and also you know you can't help but think of again of, of rampling and courtney's uh, own past as, as culture icons it's kind of like kind of like to maybe not as pronounced or as deliberate but it's kind of like peter fonda and terrence stamp and the limey where you can't avoid what these characters meant you know 40 you know 30 40 years ago um what, what these actors meant 30 or 40 years ago and 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 see that reflected in the characters yeah, and in 45 years, you get the lyrics of Smoke Gets You In Your Eyes becoming very relevant. Mm. And in Virginia Woolf, you have the the repeated refrain of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with them singing it, which is very interesting to me, mostly because it's calling back to a scene that we didn't see. It's talking back to a, a calling back to a joke that Martha apparently made at a party that everybody loved, mm-hmm. including her husband. And just through the the repeated, like, let's go back to that moment where I was hilarious and everyone loved me. We're not only going back to the Bergen story and like how the connection he still feels with that all these years later. We're going back to a moment at a party where apparently they don't do this in public because they were enough of a successful couple at that party that this other couple was willing to come home with them. They were entertaining. They were lively. He laughed at her jokes. Apparently, they have a public persona that we didn't really get to see. And just through evoking the fact that that joke went over so well over and over, they're reminding us that this is this is how they are in private. This isn't necessarily how they are in public. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the same thing at the end of 45 years when he's singing Smoke Gets in Your Eyes to her and it's so uncomfortable. At least I felt really <laughs> uncomfortable. It seemed so strained and awkward and forced and it just kept going. I that, that was really effective for me as an ending, just that particular portion where he's pretending just to be joking around and singing the lyrics, but they're so re- – almost because they're too resonant. Uh, for sure. So, Rachel, you uh, had some thoughts on the settings of both yes. of these films. Um, I thought it was really fascinating that both of these films use the idea of the house as a visual metaphor. They both really fixate on shots of the house. They open on shots of the house. It's this constant presence, this claustrophobic trap for both of them. And in both films, I think, stands as in contrast to the chaos of nature and the rest of the world in general, which is a recurring theme uh, in both, too. And so it represents both their their safe haven and their prison uh, at the same time. In 45 years, there are only a few scenes that happen outside of the house, and they're never really outside of it together until the end, which I thought 
thought was really interesting. And whenever they leave it, they're either hiding from each other or spying on each other. And I, I, I love how Andrew Hay uses uh, the different rooms in the house to, de- to represent different sort of physical and emotional states. The attic is obviously representative of Jeff's past and his sort of his own mind where he goes to escape. And she's she's trying so hard to get in there and at the end near the end she does but and then similarly he uses the house to to frame their conversations there's one conversation they're having i think the one where she's making fun of him um, for reading kierkegaard and and you can't even see him he's obscured the entire time by a bookcase and similarly there's all this visual attention paid to nature in the beginning we have this beautiful shot of the house and all this lush green grass and then midway through she's staring out her window uh, looking at this bush of full of full of dead leaves, and there seems to me at least this recurring theme that nature's sort of encroaching on them, the chaos of it, the wildness of it, the unpredictability of it, represented with Katya's fridging, um, <laughs> <laughs> and and Jeff becomes obsessed with with global warming, with the way the Earth is changing, and he you know he starts going for walks more, and he's outside, and it's to me it was sort of this dichotomy of indoors and outdoors in both films, like you can't predict what's going to happen outside of the house, but inside the house, you're safe, quote unquote, but at what cost? That's really a neat thought. Although I feel like in Virginia Woolf, outside is representing, well, okay, I guess it depends. When um, George and Nick go off together and are talking around the swing, it seems like outside is represents a, a refuge. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, a rescue. It's like they're not around their spouses anymore, and they can almost connect in a way that's immediately undone when they go back inside. But then I guess later when, when Martha's wandering around outside, and you get that, that yeah. incredible overhead that, shot. Yeah. It represents something very different being outside. Sinister, yeah. And being alone right, and isolated. Right. Yeah, you're right. Then I wonder if it was a mistake, actually, in Virginia Woolf to open it up to the extent where they go to that, you know, bar or whatever and continue. continue the roadhouse. The roadhouse. I mean, it does it. You maybe some lose. Um, you, what you gain, I guess, in a new space, uh, you might lose in some of the intensity of, of, of really being confined in a way that you are when you watch see the play you know which can again be played in a modest sized room such as the one we are sitting in um so uh, okay so uh 45 years is making its way around the country boosted by stronger views and the certainty of a charlotte rampling oscar nomination she should win i mean the actress category is incredible but charlotte rampling holy smokes uh who's afraid of virginia wolf is available on dvd in the states but not blu-ray you'd have to go overseas you have to import uh, but it is available for, for streaming rental from most of the usual sources. I watched it on Google Play. Uh, so we will be right back with our recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Rachel... Want to kick us off? Uh, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, Scott, I have a film-related item <laughs> uh, known as a book. Oh, I I finally saw Carol this week. It took me a while because I was waiting uh, to see it with with someone, and I uh, read the book the day after the the book. It's based on The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith, and I I really liked the experience of watching it and then reading the book because I think it really demonstrates how just how well Todd Haynes and Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara translated the material, but also really improved upon it. I think the book provides a really in-depth look at the interior life of, of Therese, but you get almost all of it 
from the movie, which is really, really interesting because I didn't feel like there was a ton of new information in the book, even though you, it was literally the in, her internal narrative. Um, they were able to convey so much in Carol with just glances and, and short bits of dialogue that was conveyed in an entire novel, which was obviously great on its own terms, too. But it really, really amplified Carol as a, as a work of art for me. And there's like a structural addition to the film, too, that mm-hmm. I, I think, I mean, from what I understand, that just ma- makes the film work yeah great yeah um so uh yeah but it's still you know we're not dissing patricia highsmith no a nice the, i would i would read the book if you if you like the movie you'll like the book <laughs> that's uh, not always true with me with patricia no. highsmith like i i really wanted to read all of the ripley's game books uh after seeing the first ripley movie and realizing how many times other people had translated the ripley books into different movies or the first two uh-huh. ripley books and i always found her prose just so blunt like how did you how did you find the prose in this it was a little bit but again and I think I was I was reading it less for wondering about her prose and reading it more wondering about the movie and, and how they managed to take it over to the screen and what things they kept and what they didn't and how much of the internal life was represented. I wasn't really paying as much attention as I usually do to her prose. But, yeah, it was a little high smithy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Keith, what about you? Speaking of Patricia Highsmith, oh, um, I, there's a new Blu-ray edition of uh, the American Friend from Vendor's uh, 1977 film, uh, which is an adaptation of uh, Ripley's Game. Actually, uh, the third Ripley book and a little bit of the second one. Apparently, um, I've read them, but it's been a while, and I like her prose. But it, it's it's there's an interesting story behind it, which where he wanted to adapt all these other Highsmith novels that are already uh, spoken for, and and he actually met with Highsmith and said, you know, you can definitely adapt this one because no one even seen it yet and he proceeded to um basically not adapt it or at least adapt it extremely loosely it's it's a, it's a really interesting movie um in which uh bruno gans plays this framer slash art restorer who runs who kind of offends tom ripley uh as played by dennis hopper which is uh, an interesting choice that pays off really well in the film although not necessarily the ripley you encounter in, in the books uh and kind of gets drawn into this this underworld of crime and and kind of watches his soul get taken <laughs> bit by bit as 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 uh the deeper he gets into it and, and it's uh uh the plot is is possibly may not be possible to follow um and i'm not even sure that's really the point the the atmosphere is uh extremely eerie i mean vendors is, is kind of a master of, of alienation and travel and there's a lot of that in, in this in this film and it's and it's uh shot by his uh is frequent collaborator Robbie Mueller in this in this in the ways that the uh, the new transfer really bring out is it's 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 this kind of like this vivid sickly colors um, um, it's um it's really quite good and I'd, I'd I'd recommend it. I mean I I saw that film in college on VHS and I remember it just being drab as, as yeah, VHS is but so I, so I think I'm it kind of excited I, to see it. Um, to see the Criterion and see what it actually is supposed to look like. Yeah, I'd seen the previous DVD version, which I thought looked quite good, but this is this is a kind of a revelation. They really, uh, they really uh, did, did a good job with this one. Uh, Tasha, what about you? Um, two things. Just in brief, I finally caught up on Ryan Coogler's Creed, which I, when it came out, I had no particular intention of seeing yet another Rocky film slash yet another boxing film. And uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour, one of my all-time favorite podcasts, and a podcast featuring a bunch of friends of ours, just like big upped it. They did an entire episode about why Creed is great and why it will make you cry and what emotional response to film in general is like. So they persuaded me to see see it and uh, I finally watched it last night they they 
did not steer me wrong. I really enjoyed that movie a lot. Creed is good. <laughs> Creed, Creed, I haven't seen no, Creed, Creed yet. So, yeah, it, it's beautifully directed. It, it brings a lot of nuance to uh, the sports underdog story that like little nuances that I wasn't expecting. Um, so I just I found it a lot more interesting than I was expecting and way more emotional. Um, I am not a film crier, as I often say, and I cried at this movie. So I'll um, definitely cry. It's, it's been like a thing for, for, for people to talk now. about how they cry as a thing. Yeah, guys, uh, guys especially like I cried at Creed for sure. Well, pop culture happy hour goes a bunch into that, which I found fascinating. It's the phenomenon of of men kind of semi bragging, semi humble bragging, maybe that they cried at Creed. Um, I but, thought I couldn't feel anything anymore <laughs> that I saw Creed. <laughs> I thought my face and my life was as unexpressive <laughs> as uh, Sylvester Stallone, but then I saw Creed. Um, I have three words for them: pull it together. Pull it together. Bro. You didn't cry? Pull it together, bros. <laughs> no, it's just that Scott is a super bro, and he, he does not like seeing other men Such express emotion. Yeah. Um, but in brief, another thing that uh, I was really excited about recently that was not recommended to me by uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour, so much as other friend of us and the podcast, Noel Murray, who is not hearing this because he doesn't listen to podcasts, um, is an animated Brazilian film called Boy in the World. And this film was completely not on my radar, even though it was released by G-Kids, which is the best animation company out there, getting the rights to really interesting stuff from around the world and releasing it. This film is the story of a young Brazilian boy looking for his father, who seems to be a migrant worker who's gone off to work and not come back, sort of. It's almost hard to explain because the film is so steeped in the subjective experience of childhood and it's so steeped in the subjective experience of what is around him. And it starts with this like little crayon drawing of a boy interacting with the world and that world gets bigger and bigger as he interacts with more of it. But it's still this very simplistic child's drawing crayon style that is just expanded into this very dense and beautiful world. And the two of you in the room who are parents, uh, I think really should see this film because it's it's so beautiful, but it's also just so connected with what it feels like to be a child in the world. Would our kids like it? I don't know, but I think it's child safe. It may be a little like narratively abstract for them. The storytelling is very abstract, but the imagery is so surreal and, and fascinating and beautiful. Are there, there puppies who rescue people? Because if there were, that, that would definitely be a hit at my house. Huh? There is a scene where somebody rescues a puppy, and I, I actually thought, do I need to go register this film at doesthedogdie.com? Because, I mean, it is a, I wouldn't say a traumatic scene. It's very brief, but it is kind of an emotional scene. Goodness. Well, from my experience, actually, kids do deal better with abstraction than adults. So I, I think they would handle it just fine. I mean, my for the longest time, my oldest daughter, the, her favorite film was My Neighbor Totoro. And that's not, you know, she was like three or four and connected really strongly to that over, you know, films that were told in a much more straightforward fashion. It's really adults who are closed minded. Well, they better not be uh, close-minded against Money or Tortoro because that is one of the best films of all time, uh, animated, children, or otherwise. But, Scott, you might have uh, some film that you would think is close to the best film of all time or at least worth recommending. What do you have to recommend? Well, I don't know about it. I'll, I'll, I'll take you on a journey. <laughs> and that and that journey is is me not really getting off to the strongest start this year. I was very slow, and 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 part of my procrastination was uh, rewatching all the films of Quentin Tarantino, um, uh, because I I'd watched The Hateful Hate a couple of times, and and uh, I can rank them for you. Do you want to hear a ranking? 
I'll do it real fast. A ranking of the eight in the Hateful Eight. I'll say nine. <laughs> uh, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume One, Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill Volume Two, Reservoir Dogs, Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, Death Proof. Okay, so that's the ranking. But how I also, dare you throw that on the table and then walk away from? I'm that gonna walk life. away from it because I have to move on. This is this, this is like a whole thing. Everyone is. This could be a whole show. I want to recommend the experience because I think in that very next picture show way that the context of his career means something, a career means something, especially in Tarantino's case, because he's been very deliberate about plotting his career. I mean, if you remember that interview he did with Charlie Rose, he said this many times that he wants to do what 10 films. There's a very deliberate plotting that going on this, that, that, that involves all of his work and all of it working in, in union together in a very, in a very, it's a very closed system. It's like a, like Steve Jobs or something. That's a weird comparison, Steve Jobs and Quentin Tarantino. But in any case, you know, the first three films, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, are striking in part because their stylized language and genre trappings are situated in a real contemporary, you know, recognizable world, which is which is part of what makes them effective. Then his last three films, Inglorious Bastards, uh, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, they're all historical pieces. But I think in the case of the last two, uh, they're more intent on speaking to the culture and politics of the modern world than the early ones that actually took place uh, in the world in which we live. And I think it's kind of helpful and fun to step back and consider these works together and how they relate rather than just by their individual merits. Because I think when these things come out, it, it's almost as if they get considered in a vacuum. And and uh, and, and seeing them together and how in the rhymes and, and, and themes and, and just, you know, the the very, um, just the way he micromanages his, his own career and his own filmography is interesting. It's a big machine, you know, and I think that the sum is more substantial than the parts. I think we're all still back there on your list and, and disagreeing with you about various tiny elements <laughs> of it. I also find it hard to think of Tarantino as somebody whose films get considered in a vacuum because his his personality and the way he expresses himself, the way he communicates about his films, the degree to which he communicates about his films is such a part of the narrative. I, I don't think his films get considered okay. well, in isolation. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's me being ungenerous. It's like you being ungenerous, not to him, but to, to the critical community. But, it's, a, but I, it's true that that is that that's wrong. But but there is a system at work there with the, those with these these films. I guess they are kind of. Uh, they are trilogies, some of them, and, and so, some of them fall bet- fall in between. But I do think that, and I think that maybe this is true really of, of binge watching any one filmmaker's work. Um, it, it's kind of instructive to see, to, to, to trace, to see the connections and to sort of, you know, understand the arc of their career and why, where, where their heads were at a cer- at certain moments in, in their career. So I think as an experience, you know, it's worthwhile. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, not just with Tarantino, but the idea of binge watching anybody to see what comes out of it, I think, is a really good experience. Totally. Uh, and next is Fassbender. It's going to take a long time. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, Rachel, Keith, Tasha, uh, great choices. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think really you could limit yourself to just seeing, you know, the one thing, you know, the one or two things that you all have recommended instead of the nine films that I have recommended. Uh, but, uh, but if you have a lot of time, maybe you'll want to do all those things. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Before closing the book on this week's episode, let's reveal the movie pairing for our next episode, which comes out February 2nd and 4th. Keith, what you got for us? Since we're in the doldrums of the winter season, we're looking back on one of the biggest hits of last year, Ridley Scott's The Martian, and one of the biggest flops of the decade, Andrew Statton's 2012 science fiction fantasy, John Carter. 
There are two very different stories of what it takes for a crafty American to survive in the harsh climate of the Red Planet and should make for some interesting comparisons. Definitely. That's a, that's a great pairing. I'm excited about that just because I haven't seen, you know, John Carter, I, can I say that I slept through a little bit of it? I wasn't that. <laughs> you didn't review oh, it. Did, you, didn't, you, didn't did you sleep through the part of John Carter where he grows potatoes in his own poop? Oh, see. <laughs> That part I saw. Um, so in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, 45 Years, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. In the meantime, where can we find everyone these days? Rachel Handler. I'm on Twitter at Rachel underscore Handler, and I'm writing um, for Vanity Fair and Uprox and Cosmo and Vulture, and I think that's it. Uh, Keith, what about you? I'm on Twitter at KFIPS3000, and I am running the film and TV sections of Uprox. What about you, Tasha Robinson? I am the film critic for The Verge at TheVerge.com, and you can find me on Twitter at my name with no space, Tasha Robinson. Okay, and you can follow me on Twitter and Peach... I can't Stop. believe you're still pushing the peach, peach. thing. Uh, you can like to trace things with your hands. Anyway, you can follow me on Twitter and peach at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Why is Barry laughing at peach? In any case, you can find my writing at NPR, Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, uh, Oscilloscopes, Musings, and uh, and Uprocks. I have a piece that uh, ran on Uprocks, so I'm excited about that. So um, that's where you can find me. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at NextPicturePod or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve Kosky for producing the show. You can find her on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky and to our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time where we're going to follow in Matt Damon's poop steps and uh, science the uh, crap out of this thing. Tears I cannot hide.